I um, definitely um, understand a lot of things that a lot of people are going through. And the fact that I've been through so many different phases, um, different diagnoses, that I feel like I'm very equipped and very happy and eager to help people like me. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Ronald Brownstein was a conducting prodigy, becoming the first American to win the prestigious Karyon International Conducting Competition in Berlin in 1979. He was conducting top orchestras around the world, but all the while his mental health was deteriorating. He was finally diagnosed with bipolar disorder in his 30s. In 2010, he came to Vermont to lead an orchestra, but was fired in less than a year. The following year, his career in shambles, he and Caroline Widden, an orchestra manager, decided to come out about his mental illness and turn his vulnerability into an opportunity. They formed the Me Too Orchestra in Burlington, Vermont, the only orchestra in the world created by and for people living with mental illness and those who support them. Me Too now has orchestras in Burlington, Boston, and affiliates are forming elsewhere. A new documentary film about Me Too, called Orchestrating Change, is now airing on public television stations around the country. Today's Vermont Conversation, we discuss this musical and mental health odyssey of Me Too with Ronald Brownstein, the co-founder and conductor of the orchestra, Caroline Widden, co-founder and executive director of Me Too, and Merrick Lawrence, a musician in the Me Too Orchestra. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, Ronald Brownstein and Caroline Widden. Thank you. Caroline, let me start with you as a co-founder and executive director of the Me Too Orchestra. There are a variety of community and professional orchestras, both in Vermont and beyond. Why was there a need for the Me Too Orchestra? Uh, well, the need um, came about specifically because of, of Ronald's diagnosis and the, the stigma and discrimination that he had faced. And when he started talking to me about his experiences, we realized that this was an opportunity to cre create a safe space, not only for Ronald, but for anybody else who was living with a diagnosis and not feeling like they could really talk about it. Um, I think when you, when you talk about other community orchestras or choruses or, you know, other music making ventures, there are likely many people who are members of those groups who are living with a diagnosis and may have, you know, both good and bad days. But the difference with me too is that they know they can talk about it and they'll be accepted and it's okay. Well, Ronald, let me get a little of that story uh, from you. You were a prodigy. You won the prestigious International Von Karyon Conducting Competition, becoming the first American conductor to earn this coveted prize right out of Juilliard. And you said in the film Orchestrating Change that everything you touched turned to gold. When did that start to unravel? I never got totally unraveled um, for any sustained period of time, but it started to unravel um, in, my, in the mid-80s. In your 20s? Yeah, around 25. So really a year after you win this, uh, this uh, prestigious prize, what 
did you start to experience in your in your professional life? Well, I had certain beliefs that um, that the less I ate and slept, the the more brilliant I would become. That's when it started that on and off. And when did you realize, when did people who you worked with start letting you know that they knew that something wasn't right with you? When I was um, 13, um, my father thought that I was a little bit um, very, very excitable. Um, And he took me to a psychiatrist when I was 13. And he said that I have bad nerves. Um, well, w- when it first started to show up in my career was when I found myself in a rehearsal, um, rehearsing the same note again and again and again for about 45 minutes. Um, I thought it was getting incrementally better, but no one else really thought so. And at, at the intermission, um, the manager came up to me and he said, Ronald, we think we think we have you can't con- continue conducting after the break because you're too sick. And I said, "What? I I don't have a um, sore throat or anything." He says, "No, we 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 can't." There was no real um, way in the in the seventies to talk about it. Um, so. Um, they bought me out of the rest of the contract. And that was the first you'd really had somebody kind of reflect back to you that uh, the way you were behaving was not appropriate. Right. That was the, that was actually the second time. Uh, the first time when I was, I was conducting in uh, Holland and I found myself standing on a stool conducting the orchestra because I felt that I could hear the blend better. And um, you really can, um, but it really didn't go well. Um, well musicians, okay. musicians loved it, but management didn't. <laughs> um, well, Caroline, you also have a background uh, in music. You, um, in the film, it talks about how you graduated from the prestigious Eastman School of Music in performance in French horn. And I'm guessing that like a lot of performance majors, you pictured a life in a major orchestra for yourself and um, things took a change. So talk a little bit about your musical journey. Yeah, I, I was uh, brought up in a musical household. Both of my parents were professional performing musicians and and uh, I never really had any other career path in mind. So I got all the way through Eastman and uh, was about to start my graduate degree and realized that uh, I was depressed and anxious and, and was formally diagnosed at that point and had to make the really difficult decision not to continue to try to be a performer. Uh, so at that point, I kind of pivoted and ended up working in the office at the, the local symphony where I grew up in Columbus, Georgia. And 
I just fell in love with the administrative side of things. Thank goodness, because I think if I had continued to try to perform, um, you know, the anxiety and the depression just would have gotten worse. I really, I, I had to make a decision to help myself. And it was the right decision at that time, for sure. Hmm. Well, Merrick Lawrence, let's bring you into the conversation. Yes, hello. Hi. I know that you're a musician, you're a clarinetist, which I'm especially had happy to hear since I am a fellow clarinetist. Oh, excellent. Tell me why what led you to join the Me Too Orchestra? Well, around the time that I first joined the Me Too Orchestra, um, you know, I think it was right after I had just been hospitalized for the first time. I had my first bipolar manic episode and, you know, I completely lost touch with reality. I had this, you know, delusions of grandeur and I had this sense of reality that was completely different from what was actual. And it was like this huge roller coaster ride and, um, you know, my, my family had to call 911 and I was hospitalized. And so things kind of, while I was in the hospital, things kind of um, calmed down a little bit, but then I was prescribed all these medications. I think I was on Zyprexa at first. And I remember being very sedated from the medications and just feeling kind of, uh, you know, even though my symptoms had gone away of, of mania, I was just sort of a shadow of my former self, just a very lethargic, sleeping maybe, you know, upwards of 14 hours a day, um, just having a, a hard time, just, just getting by and making it from one day to the next day was very difficult. And I think my sister saw an, in the newspaper an advertisement, it was, um, you know, something for me too. Um, and she said, Hey, you, you know, my sister said, Hey, I, um, you know, I've saw in the newspaper about this orchestra for people with mental health issues and people who support them. Why don't you check it out? So that's, that's how I found out about it. And that's how I initially joined the orchestra. Tell me about a little bit about your history and music. When did you begin playing clarinet? I began playing clarinet in middle school in sixth grade. And then I started taking uh, clarinet lessons starting in eighth grade. And I was very active as a clarinet player in high school. Um, I played in the jazz band and I played in the regular band as well. Um, I've, I've been to the Vermont Allstate Festival and uh, I made it to New England's one year as well. And then um, I decided to go to college to UVM. I started out as a music education major because uh, I was not really 100% sure what I wanted to do when I got to college, but I started out as music education. And then, 
you know, I was still in college when I first started having bipolar symptoms and needing to be hospitalized and stuff like that. So I switched to uh, music theory and composition and I finished my degree at UVM in, in theory and composition. Hmm. Um, Ronald uh, Brownstein, um, I know that you have talked about as you've seen orchestra members go through difficult times and you've also mentioned seeing Merrick as he, you know, confronts some of his challenges, that um, it affects you too, because you see yourself in some of the struggles that the players have. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I um, definitely um, understand a lot of things that a lot of people are going through. And the, the fact that I've been through so many different phases, um, different diagnoses, um, that I feel like I'm very, very equipped and very happy and eager to help people like me. I'm curious, uh, Ronald, you know, you were, you know, performing at one time in your life with the finest musicians in the world, yeah. professional musicians. And now you're working with enthusiastic amateurs. What is that like, that change? How does it change the way you do your work? Well, I always um, try to get any orchestra um, to play as well as it can. That's the constant. Um, in the Me Too orchestra, there's a really wide range of, of levels. And since I've worked in so many different environments, like I, I taught at Juilliard and I taught at Manus and I, um, I really had a, a way to, to um, teach people of that type. And then I also taught, uh, not taught, but I conducted a lot of, I, I conducted a lot of times in the mountain and then a lot of the times under the bridge. So um, I really, it was very, I can handle any musical level, um, but the main thing for a conductor is to be able to um, hear the orchestra and encourage them to hear each other. So that way um, you can become one with the orchestra. Once, what's that, once that's happening, whether it's a great orchestra or it's not a great orchestra, um, once you can get that to happen, it's very, very exciting and is very fulfilling to be part of any group. Um, Caroline Whidden, um, in watching the, uh, the film Orchestrating Change, one of the things that really strikes me is that um, people's participation in it is, uh, you, you have to kind of breathe and move with what's going on in their lives. And people may come and they may go away for some time because of struggles they're having. Um, you run this orchestra as its manager, among other things, and executive director. What is that like? Um, how do you function as a performing group when um, you may have to give people space, the people who you also need to be part of the performances? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, we really, uh, we knew that we were going to have to operate with a different set of rules. 
we do have certain expectations, but they're not the expectations that, uh, that a professional or even a, a different community orchestra would, would operate by. I mean, we don't uh, show someone the door because they've missed a couple of rehearsals in a row. We don't demote somebody from, from their seating uh, because they've missed a couple of notes. Um, we really prioritize kindness and empathy over anything else. Um, there are no auditions, there are no fees. We really wanted to remove all the barriers to participation. So we did that and then we learned that sometimes people were frankly just going to disappear. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in, in particular of, of a violinist who uh, started showing up at the rehearsals early on, you know, a very, uh, a very well put together young woman that nobody would probably suspect was dealing with any sort of emotional or chemical turmoil. And uh, she just stopped coming. I didn't hear from her, didn't know what happened. And she literally disappeared from the radar screen for several months. And when she got back in touch with me, it turned out she had been in rehab. And she'd at that point received a diagnosis of bipolar two. Uh, I said, wonderful. When can you come back? Your chair's still open. So yeah, we, we operate a little differently than other places. <laughs> there's, there's always room for people to come back and, and we really, we pride ourselves and we focus on that, that, you know, it's, it's, we try not to focus on what might go wrong or what might be unpredictable in any given week but how do we respond when people are ready to be with us and participate um, and maybe come back into the fold after being absent? What do you want people to understand about mental illness? Caroline. I want, uh, personally, I want people to understand that uh, you can have a diagnosis and live well and contribute. I think we've heard all too often again and again from our musicians that when they were given the diagnosis, the impression and sometimes just the outright words they heard from their doctors, from their family members, from their friends were, oh gosh, I'm sorry, good luck, try to stay out of trouble and get on disability and go home. Um, I literally had people say that about Ronald Brownstein when I told them you know, with his permission, when I shared his diagnosis with some people that I knew in Vermont 10 years ago, they said, well, he shouldn't be around children. He should go home. He should get on disability. And I was shocked. I mean, it really speaks to the, uh, the lack of education and, and reality-based education that people have around mental illness. I think we were so used to this these messages that we get from TV or the movies that are really the sensationalized, uh, you know, far end of what it might mean to be in a psychotic state. And people don't understand that you can have schizophrenia or, or uh, bipolar disorder or live with an addiction and actually have it be well treated and live very well. Ronald, what did it mean to you to lead an orchestra where you could be totally open about your uh, mental health challenges? 
um, it's beautiful. I never really felt that I had a lot of, um, I never felt, I'd been diagnosed with the mental health uh, a long time ago. Um, but I really didn't take it that seriously. I didn't really uh, think that I was being stigmatized necessarily. I thought things were just kind of situational or weird. Um, and then some, then I'd have some kind of episode and I'd realize something really wasn't right. And then I'd be very depressed and then I'd be manic. Um, and after a while I started to realize, hmm, something really is wrong. Um, and that I'd better come to terms with this illness seriously. Um, so I came out and, um, from that day forward, I never ever think of myself as someone living with an illness. It never crosses my mind ever when I'm walking down the street, when a reporter asks me about my mental illness, I have to stop and think, Oh, right. I'm mentally ill. I'm, I'm happy. I'm productive. I have a lot of love around me. Um, I have a wonderful orchestra. Hmm. Couldn't get really better. Merrick, what has it meant to you to play uh, in the orchestra, in the Me Too Orchestra? For me, to play in the Me Too Orchestra, um, you know, as someone who's diagnosed with, uh, with a, a mental health condition, you know, it never really occurred to me at first that I could be part of a group that gives back to the community and, um, you know, a group that works to erase the stigma surrounding mental health. And, um, you know, I think the orchestra is definitely something positive for the community in that way. And so just to be part of something that is a group of people coming together for a cause greater than just the individual. Uh, it's very fulfilling to be part of a group like that because, uh, you know, it's not just, I'm not just succumbing to my mental illness and saying, oh, things, things are just going to be how they're going to be. And, you know, maybe I won't have all the opportunities that, a quote-unquote normal person would have but on the contrary you know I'm able to try my hardest to live the best life I possibly can and in addition to that be part of a group that really um, you know has a message for the community to really start a discussion around um, how people view people with mental health issues and that, you know, we're really just, just as normal as everybody else and have, we have just as much to contribute as everyone else. And it's really, you know, I think that message of inclusion is very, it's a cool thing to be part of, you know. I understand you've just dropped an album, a hip hop album. Yes, that's correct. Tell me about it. Well, um, this is the this is the third or fourth album that I've dropped, and 
so I'm a hip hop artist and sometimes I call myself an MC and uh, you know it really my journey with hip hop started when one of my buddies he he's been involved in hip hop longer than I have and there was you know back in almost 10 years ago he introduced me to some of uh, his friends who are into hip hop so I sort of got into it and you know, over the years, I'd show up to more, you know, events, hip-hop events, concerts, and we'd have freestyle sessions and stuff stuff like that. So I think just being able to do hip-hop and have it be kind of like uh, a hobby of sorts, uh, something I could spend my spare time on, is really cool. And, you know, the album, I worked on it for almost a year with uh, several of my friends there were quite a few people involved and it was super cool to record it and have it mixed and mastered and do all the artwork and you know there's a lot of work that went into it and i'm really proud of what came out of it so i'm really happy about that hmm. caroline you uh you have a little background on this well, I just wanted to, to share a little story about Merrick and, um, and the beginnings of Me Too. And I don't know if he even remembers this, Merrick. You'll, you'll call me out on it if I get the details wrong. But I remember when we, we had first started and we had, you know, two or three rehearsals with a handful of people. And Ronald and I thought, phew, okay. So we got people together. They're rehearsing. That's step one. But but I wonder if they're really going to be willing to like actually go out and perform publicly as part of a, you know, quote unquote mental health orchestra. So at, at like the fourth rehearsal we ever had, we had this, you know, little group meeting during the break. And I said to everybody, okay, you're here, you're playing, it's all good. But we feel like if, if we're going to make it our mission to fight stigma, we've got to get out there and perform for the public and how many of you are comfortable with that. And there was kind of this quiet that fell over the room and Merrick just kind of raised his hand. He's like, well, yeah, we have to do that. I mean, <laughs> we're not going to change anybody's mind if we don't go out and perform for people. Right. Like it was so obvious <laughs> to him. And then everybody just kind of fell in line behind him. Like he had such a good vibe and was just so confident that, yeah, this, this is the message we got to share. We got to go out and do it. Hmm. So um, that's, do, that's my Merrick. <laughs> Caroline, do you think of me too as having a social justice mission? Absolutely. I, I see all of our musicians as uh, as really amazing advocates and social justice warriors. And Ronald, where do you hope that Me Too will go in the next few years? I think that it'll just expand more and more um, orchestras and affiliates touching more and more people and just spreading the message of acceptance and and love okay well ronald brownstein caroline widden and merrick lawrence i want to thank uh, all of you for joining us on the vermont conversation this week you're very welcome thank you thank you so much that does it for this week's vermont conversation i'm david goodman thanks so much for listening mm -hmm.